I'm the doctor. So you're the famous Sam. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that hopes this series is leaving a legacy of its own for future generations. Oh, we sound really big-headed, Kenny. Well, we're trying to leave a legacy so that people will be able to listen to these podcasts and find out how the EDAs came about, because there's no other record out there, really, unless you look at old Doctor magazines. But here, we can talk about them in the present tense, and also the authors look back on them and what was going on then. So, yeah, that's not pretentious. That that's true. That's being historically responsible. I think it was more the legacy of its own for future generations that I didn't like. No, oh, oh <laughs> well. Legacy. Mm. Why don't anyway, you tell us what we're up to? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, 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 I feel like I'm in the point of being overexhausted to the point that my brain is just like kapow at the moment. You need to go and eat some more of those rusks that you bought yesterday. Oh, for God's sake, I do. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me started on those damn rusks. Uh, we're back, exploring those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of Time Lord as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith, and you're back with us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits. And I'm just going to save myself time and say, in books. <gasps> How could you? I just did. <laughs> Terrible. Well, we're continuing our daily look at the Eighth Doctor adventure novels, which were published by BBC Books in the 1990s. Today we've reached book number 10, Legacy of the Daleks, by John Peel, not that one, which was published just six months after the previous Dalek book, War of the Daleks, by the same author. Again, not that John Peel. We'd gone through six years of original fiction with no Daleks, then two arrived in the space of six months. Pedants don't write in saying there was a five-month gap between releases because there wasn't. The BBC Books range didn't publish in December, which annoyed me at the time, actually. But there was that extra month gap in there, so it may have been five books apart, but it was six months in time. So there we go. Just thought I'd address that. Uh, anyway, as ever, Becca, would you mind telling us the back cover blurb to tell us about Legacy of the Daleks, published on the 6th of April, 1998? Indeed I can. Hang on a second. <clears throat> I forgot my reading voice yesterday, and oh. it didn't help. <laughs> um. England, in the late 22nd century, is slowly recovering from the devastation that followed the Daleks' invasion. The Doctor's very first travelling companion, his granddaughter Susan, is where he left her, helping to rebuild Earth for the survivors, but danger still remains all around. While searching for his lost companion, Sam, the Doctor finds himself into Maine, London. But it seems that Susan is now missing too, and his efforts to find her lead to a confrontation with the ambitious Lord Halderan, who is poised to take control of southern England through all-out war. With the help of a sinister advisor, Halderan's plans are already well advanced. Power cables have been fed down a mineshaft, reactivating a mysterious old device of hideous power. But has the Dalek presence on Earth really been wiped out, or are there still traps set for the unwary? Thank you, Becca. Now, of course, we're used to the Big Finish audios having picked up with Susan in An Earthly Child, where we learn that she has her son, Alex, with her human husband, David, which contradicts what we're told here. So we've got, in this case, Susan's had to put on ageing makeup to pretend she's getting older, but because she's a Time Lord, she's not aged in the way that humans do. And she wasn't able to have any children with David due to incompatible bio stuff. At least, um, at least we know that humans can be compatible and have babies. Right, Becca? And right, Bump? Bump says yes. <laughs> oh, good. So, um, given that there's this 
discontinuity? Shall we quietly pretend that we didn't notice that at all? Definitely not. What discontinuity? That's never a thing. Exactly, as if one Doctor Who story would contradict another in different media by different authors many years apart, but there we go. Definitely not. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, as ever, we've created some readings from the books we feature each episode for you to hear. And we're going to begin with an excerpt from the start with the Doctor and the TARDIS travelling alone since being split up from Sam. A light pulsed in the console and the Doctor stared at it. The telepathic circuits... Sam, had she... Then a blast sent him tumbling across the room, his mind a searing blaze of pain, agony, despair, death. The doctor managed to crawl to his hands and knees, his mind scorched by the strong telepathic message that had broken past all of his normal safeguards. His limbs shook, and he couldn't focus his mind on anything but the appalling, the terror, the end of everything, nothingless, pain obliteration, and kill. He was aware that he was swining slightly as he staggered to his feet and lurched back to the console. He slammed his hand down onto the telepathic contact, cutting off the message, and freeing his mind again from its dreadful grip. He breathed deeply, leaning on the panel until the shaking in his body had ceased. The message had been so strong it had threatened to overwhelm him, but he had recognised it in the few seconds it had lasted. Susan, he whispered. Was it merely a coincidence that he'd been thinking of her only minutes before? Or was coincidence just another word for causation? What had happened to her? What or who had she been wanting to kill? That wasn't the Susan he... Then he stopped himself. What she was like now, he had no idea. A twinge of guilt needled his mind as he realised that he'd hardly thought of her in ages, let alone visited her as he had promised so glibly. If it hadn't been for Rassilon's game, he'd never have seen her at all, in all these hundreds of years. And even then, he'd barely talked to her. What was behind this message? He was starting to think coherently again, though his head still throbbed. A mental blast like that, amplified through the telepathic circuits, could do a great deal of damage to any Time Lord close to the source. He checked the space-time coordinates and discovered something very strange. First of all, the mental blast had come via the telepathic circuits of another TARDIS, which didn't make any sense, because Susan didn't have access to one. Did she? Did she? And second, it had come from a world other than Earth, and at a distant time. Somehow, obviously, she must have come into contact with another TARDIS. Or was it his but from some other incarnation. It wasn't one of his past selves, of course. He'd have recalled such a meeting. Which didn't, of course, rule out either his future self or a future regeneration. He checked the records, though, and discovered that the carrier wave didn't match his own TARDIS. So, she had somehow made contact with another Time Lord and used his or her ship to get off Earth, either voluntarily or as a captive. The latter was only too plausible considering only renegades had a habit of picking up people from one world and transporting them to another, like himself. But then, there was the content of her message, racked by pain and anguish that he could hardly understand himself. What could have driven her to this? And there had been that sensation that death was hovering close beside her. Susan hadn't been facing impending death. She was facing it. Not with doubt, but with certainty. 
Was her message then aimed at him? A cry for help? No, he had not sensed that it was a cry for anything other than death and revenge. But why? The doctor opened his eyes at last, staring at the console. Susan was on the verge of death and already sunk into despair. She needed his help. Guiltily, he realised that he'd abandoned her for far too long and she had been far too young when he had cut off all of her ties with her own heritage. At the time, it had seemed to be the right thing to do. Hadn't it? He didn't know. But maybe now he could do something about it. Oh, that was interesting. The doctor feeling guilty about his granddaughter. Absolutely. And if you're somebody like me who's read just or, or had read all these books at the time they came out, I also noticed it contradicted Mark Gatiss's new adventure, Nightshade, where he actually remembered Susan, whereas this book says that the Doctor hadn't thought about Susan and since pretty much she'd left her. So, shall we just quietly pretend we didn't notice any discontinuity again? I don't know why you keep using the word discontinuity, but as if that would ever exist in Doctor Who. That's very true. <laughs> I completely forgot what I'm talking about. Anyway, shall we move on and hear from our pal Steve Cole, the range editor of BBC Books at the time, and also our new podcast pal. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books' Doctor Who list back in the late 90s. So, next we've got book 10, Legacy of the Daleks. I suppose it's always fun having Daleks in Doctor Who and the fact that this was just the second novel in, what, six, seven years of original Doctor Who publishing to feature them. That's right. Um, John Peel had been commissioned for two Dalek novels. The reason we had so few was because the Terminationist estate had quite, quite punishing terms uh, for the use of Daleks, which we wouldn't have been comfortable offering to most authors. But because John Peel was very friendly with um, with members of the nation estate, and they were very keen for him to do them, um, and he was happy with the terms, uh, that was that was brought about. So it was my predecessor on the range, Nuala Buffini, who uh, commissioned the two books. It's my recollection that originally Legacy of the Daleks was commissioned as a third Doctor title, which is why it had the uh, the Delgado master, and uh, I think it was kind of placed after Planet of the Daleks. But that may not be as it was. It might be a newly misremembering. But certainly it was unclear where it was sitting in the schedule. For me, it worked as an Eighth Doctor story because it came straight after Longest Day, which was conceived and and written as a way of writing out Sam temporarily and having the Doctor look for her while she grew in uh, age, maturity and general character so we could have a a clearer through put for her in terms of of how she was going to develop as the authors had not quite uh, all agreed on how best to portray her. So it was a handy break from the main narrative and always considered to be, you know, after all that, now some Daleks in a story which was kind of more traditional than perhaps we were, we were sometimes using and uh, a chance to catch up with dear Susan and David and uh, and broken future London. So uh, that was that's how it was uh, <laughs> how it was brought about and uh, sold into the range. You mentioned the Delgado Master, of course. This was, I believe, kept quite quiet in all the marketing and stuff beforehand. But then, 
out comes the trailer, your VHS trailer from BBC Worldwide. And lo and behold, says the enemies from the past. And then it shows the cover of Legacy of the Daleks. And there's the Delgado Master. And I remember thinking, wow. oh, is that a teaser? Is that a reveal? And I asked Dave Owen, who was then reviewing books for Doctor Who magazine in the pub in Edinburgh. I said, Delgado Master? And he's like, yeah, how'd you know that? Yeah, I saw it in the trailer. So there we go. There was the, the big surprise was blown by your own trailer, only because I picked up on it. So <laughs> It was blown because it was, uh, you know, obviously I, I put that trailer together um, as well as voicing it. So we it was a way of really getting across the fact that Doctor Who was no longer just going forward in books. That because we had all the videos and all the audios and all the books coming out from the same department, when I say department, I mean the same desk, <laughs> my desk. It was a, a way of being able to show that, yeah, this stuff is now, you know, we can be much more inclusive. Um, it's all coming from the same world. So that, that, that was, we had that specially made trail, the fact that there was budget for it. You know, was 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 helpful, and again, further proof of how the BBC would determine to make the most of having all rights in a property. So only Doctor Who and Top Gear have that status of the BBC as being created by the BBC alone. Yeah. Um, it may have changed since since then, but certainly in the uh, late nineties, that was the case. So yes, I was quite happy rather than just putting Daleks in for Legacy of the Daleks, as we'd already done that on War of the Daleks. It was time for uh, yeah. the Delgado reveal. And you know, it was it was it's quite fun with uh, doctors and masters meet out of order, but uh, and it's interesting as well looking at the story, the idea of you know a Dalek artifact being revived, and although clearly it's inspired by or paying homage to a power of the Daleks, it's interesting that uh, you know it's really a kind of protogenesis arc, uh, the idea that uh, the Daleks can be creating themselves and then flooding out from within obviously the genesis arc is on a far greater scale and rather more uh <laughs> fantastically entertainingly um interesting but uh it's it's interesting that you know sometimes with some of the images that we we put into the books some of the events that we contrived to produce actually ended up uh with echoes in the uh in the main show when it came back i think it kind of shows that you know the authors were kind of on to the general Doctor Who-ness, that we were kind of doing our doing our job, doing our bit, and we were doing it okay, I think. Was there anything in the editing process that sprang to mind? The editing process, as I recall, John was amenable to his work being, you know, cut or chopped about a bit. Um, he understood that what the, uh, the author's vision um, sometimes must give way to the the range's own editorial needs. So he didn't cause any ruckus at all, which is always, you're always grateful for when you're you're editing two 80,000 word novels a month. I remember I uh, I had to, because I was making it tie in with the whole Sam thing, I wanted to, I, I think I wrote those linking bits. And I remember writing a bit where and the doctor talks about collecting companions by badges. That's the line that I, I recall putting in. And I think I put in a bit where the Doctor is kind of so upset and overwhelmed that the Daleks are back again. He can never get rid of them. I think he kind of like goes staggering off almost suicidally to uh, to confront uh, the Daleks before getting zapped or pushed aside or something. I really wanted to get a sense of, you know, if we're using Daleks, so really, we really need to get to the Doctor's utter hatred and loathing of them just as they loathe him. You know, there's that 
huge antipathy between them and these irreconcilable viewpoints rather than just, oh, it's the Daleks again, you know, especially as it was an event for the BBC books to have them when Virgin hadn't been able to, to pull that particular coup off. At least, you know, obviously with the enemy, they were hinted at and they were, you know, alluded to, but we actually had them. So it was always slightly disappointing that we didn't, there wasn't time, I don't think, to really make more of that and to make, I was always looking for a story where we'd really get to the nuts and bolts of, the Doctor and the Daleks hating each other. <laughs> Instead, it, it, uh, it became a, you know quite a, a melee of, uh, of past continuity points, as well as uh, as well as obviously you know new bits and you know revisiting a location, finding out what's happened. You know, it's it's perfectly valid. Doctor Who is might look at you know Peladon, for example. But yeah, it would have been good to get more to grips with with that more fundamental struggle. I think between the Doctor and the Daleks because that's what really interested me at the time. And I've always, I always loved the uh, the bits in Doctor Who when you see the uh, the Doctor's face as he realizes the Daleks are there. Um, I think Davison was particularly good at portraying that, as he is with the Cybermen too. Uh, that look of absolute horror and fear, and also anger that uh, that these creatures inspire in him. Um, so that's that's just my own personal musings, of course. But uh, we didn't use the Daleks again after that because, you know. It needed to be something that really warranted not just their appearance, but also kind of capitulating to the nation estate and, uh, and accepting the terms, which uh, which really weren't, weren't terribly good. It's the same reason we uh, didn't use the uh, Cybermen for a very long time after Illegal Alien. That was uh, the big aliens were the ones who wanted the most, not just a fee, but also, you know, further concessions. So, you know, you can't really afford to... Uh, to capitulate that often on a business sense because the other rights holders get to hear of it then things spiral out of control so it was it was kind of better to uh, and I wanted to focus more on new and original enemies anyway so it kind of you know the two things kind of coincided but yeah Legacy of the Daleks was um, commissioned at the same time as War of the Daleks as part of that initial one of Newless so that was uh, that was me just sort of like seeing off that last bit of business ready for my predecessor's time before boarding that jolly blue box for uh, further adventures. I would assume that it sold very well, given that there were Daleks in the cover. Yes, I believe it did uh, sell extra. I think it was a very good cover as well. It was nice to have the sort of Daleks uh, quite prominent on that. Um, Daleks always give things a lift. And in those days still, you know, the books were, were, were selling particularly well. But uh, I'm not sure the uptick in sales warranted you know, some of the some of the extra expense behind it. So yeah, it was no one came to me and said, Oh, can we can we put the Daleks on the cover again? So they they weren't it wasn't bringing in that much of a of a new audience just because it was a Dalek story. Which was uh, yeah, just another reason why we wanted to uh, try and push ahead with our own monsters. Thanks to our regular guest Steve again, and he'll be back with us next episode. Now before we hear from John Peel. Not that one. Shall we hear an encounter between Susan and the Black Dalek? Susan stood shivering in the centre of the Dalek control room. It was some 20 feet long and 10 high and wide. Computer banks and monitors lined both walls. There were doors in both end walls, both with Daleks on guard. In the room, most of the Daleks were operating the control systems. Only two were paying attention to her. 
the deep metallic throbbing in the complex sounded like a vast electronic heartbeat. The pulse of the Daleks. What is happening? She asked the black Dalek that surveyed her. How is it possible that you're still alive? You do not need to know, the Dalek replied. You are here to answer questions. It would help if I understood what was happening, Susan insisted. My information would be useless to you if I'm ignorant. The Dalek pondered the point. You do not know why the humans are here? No, Susan admitted. I was not one of them. I came here to try and stop them. If she does not know, the second Dalek stated, then she is of no value to us and should be exterminated. No, said Susan hastily. I am of a faction opposing them. We are trying to stop them, so we know many of their plans. The Black Dalek regarded her. Do not attempt to deceive us, it warned her. Of course I won't, Susan promised. I want to live. The second Dalek turned slightly away. Humans are weak creatures, it decided. Keep on thinking that, Susan said to herself. She had to discover what was happening in order to halt it before any greater damage was done. The Black Dalek finally spoke. Very well, it agreed. Then you will tell us what you know. Of course, Susan lied. Now, how is it that you are alive? All of the Daleks were destroyed thirty odd years ago. That eventuality was prepared for, the Black Dalek answered. There was always a small chance that the humans would defeat us temporarily. This unit was created as a secondary measure. A backup plan, Susan realised, in case the primary one was defeated. Yes, the Dalek confirmed. Information was placed in data banks that this was a research facility and that a powerful weapon had been tested here. Starting to comprehend, Susan nodded, so that some humans would find the information, come looking for the device, and be forced to introduce power to your systems to access the device. Your computers then siphoned off the power to other uses. Correct, the Black Dalek said. The device was a trap. This unit is a factory. Factory? Susan realised what it meant. Where fresh Daleks would be created for a second attempt to conquer Earth. Embryos were frozen, awaiting revival, the Dalek informed her. The assembly line was prepared. All that was required was power. Susan was cold with terror. And the device? Is it real? The Dalek regarded her. The device is real, but untested. That is all the knowledge you require. It then turned to the closest control panel. Report! The Dalek at the panel swivelled at what should have been its waist. The device is powered up. It reported. Testing can begin within five time units. The target will be the city the humans call London. The Black Dalek announced. Set the device accordingly. It turned back to Susan. Now, you will tell us what we need to know. 
Susan nodded bitterly, trying to get her thoughts in order. She had to lie successfully about plans she couldn't know to stay alive. And then she had to escape and somehow stop the Daleks before they wiped out London and everyone that she knew and loved. Now it's time to hear again from John, complete with his lovebirds that tweeted every time he spoke. Bloody animals and social media, I see what Elon Musk's done. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Peel. I'm the author of Legacy of the Daleks for the Eighth Doctor books, among other various Doctor Who-related uh, projects. Welcome back to Pieces of Eights, John. Nice to be here. Good. Suppose the, the biggie when everybody saw the cover, which was obviously revealed before the plot for Legacy of the Daleks was, oh my goodness, it's a sequel to the Dalek Invasion of Earth. And that was a bit, I mean, at the time, we're used to, you know, through Big Finish, we've had several sort of stories set in the aftermath or even during it. But at the time, this was a complete wow. Here we go. And it's a direct sequel with Daleks in it as well. Well... I think probably you know, uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth was one of the really, really formative TV shows of my youth. I mean, I'd love when we had the original Dalek story. I mean, obviously, like a lot of other people, I really love the Daleks. But having them on Earth, evading the Earth, had, had just sort of really struck home. And um, there, were, there was so much fun in that TV story. So there were also questions it left unanswered, like poor old Susan being left behind on Earth. And I thought, there's plenty of room in there for more stories. I thought, how would they rebuild the Earth after the Zark invasion? I mean, they said something like 90% of the population of, the, of humanity was destroyed in the plagues and everything Zark's created before they even invaded. Um, so I thought, well, how can you rebuild from that? And then that's what really led to the whole story. It just seemed like there was so much of another story to tell there, coming back from African invasion. And um, I, I, I just loved the idea of that. And of course, this story didn't feature Sam. So did you find that a bit of a help that you could just solely concentrate on the Doctor and David and Susan as our lead three characters? Um, yes, very much so. As I say, the, the, the problem was I really didn't know what was being done with Sam. Um, I knew they had plans for her, for the character, but I didn't know what really they were. And um, the editor just said to me, well, can you leave Sam out of this? Because it's, this is going to be in the middle of a series where Sam is going to be taken out of the running for a time being. And he said, you know, and just have the doctor on his own. I'll give him a temporary companion for the story, which is what I ended up doing. So, yes, since I, I really hadn't got a handle on Sam, except for in a very basic sense, um, it, it did help to not have to worry about her as well. Yeah. Literally, in this case, you've got a whole world with which to play with. Okay, maybe only 10% uh, of the population or so is left, or less than 10%. But it, the fact that the world building's been done for you already, that must have been a big help, the fact that people can visualise, we know exactly where things are, we know what the world looks like, and we already know David, and we know Susan. 
Yes, very much so. I mean, it, it, it's really good having that basis. And um, a large part of the impetus from the story came in the fact that I was thinking that obviously Susan, um, whether or not they intended it in the show, the original show, of course, Susan is a lot, lot, lot longer lived than David. And how do you deal with that? And that struck me as being an interesting storyline, obviously, because Susan, being a Time Lord, has this much, much longer lifespan. And how can she deal with it? Did she think through the whole situation? And um, it, it, was, it was interesting from that point of view for me, I think. I was looking at, at this as, because when you write a story, you want an interesting situation. You want interesting characters. You, can, you, know, you, you, you create these lovely characters and then you do horrible things to them, basically, because that's what, a, what the story needs. I mean, there's no story unless there's some conflict. And the conflict between David and Susan as the other side of the love between David and Susan was intriguing to me. I, I just love this idea of dealing with how does David deal with the fact that he's going to die so much before Susan? Um, and how does Susan deal with it and everything? So it, it, it gave me a lot to work with, which was, which was lovely. Yeah. And I suppose the fact you've got the idea of the Daleks having invaded Earth, and of course they would have created their own research stations and labs and such like and the fact that susan's gone off to find one which gives the story a nice hook we've got that the drama of uh, susan wanting to sort of follow in her grandfather's footsteps and defeat the daleks again yeah well I, it was all for me again i was going back to the the dalek invasion of earth story i was thinking well you know I think at the time I'd read um, about them finding another unexploded bomb in London or something, you know, even, even that long after the war. I mean, we're talking like 40 years at that point, I think, after the war, they were still finding unexploded ordnance. And I was thinking, well, in the case of the Daleks, you know, the Daleks had invaded the planet. They'd come in with all of their troops and everything, all of the sciences and stuff. The idea of there being basically an unexploded Dalek devices all over the place just struck me as being a logical move. I mean, because the Daleks were defeated doesn't mean they could, you know, they, they didn't take everything away. It was still there. And I like the idea of there being these Dalek artifacts and humans being very, very wary of them because you never knew what the Daleks may have done to them. So it gave me, again, it gave me this um, basis for story, which really struck me as being, even before I was writing it, even before I was planning it exactly, I was thinking, well, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. And when you start putting things together, you, you've got a story. I mean, there, there's a huge text in the story already written before I even write a word, because of the backgrounds you once you've got a background and everything you you've you've really got what you need to tell a story and that's what i had with legacy and i i just loved it i just like the idea of being um able to come in and say it's not a they all lived happily ever after story 
in the Dalek invasion of Earth, at the end of the story, it's not everybody's all left and, you know, they all lived ever ha happily ever after. They didn't. They couldn't. I mean, the Earth had been wrecked, basically. So there was going to be a lot of trouble, a lot of problems. And um, as I say, given that, there's just so much you can do with it. And of course, you put poor David through the ringer as well before you ultimately kill him off. You swine, Mr. Yeah. Peel. Well, as I say, you have to put the characters through the ringer because that's that's part of their job, being in I felt terribly sorry for David in that sense. I mean, very glad for him because he, he got the girl of his dreams, basically. But then, as often happens, sometimes the girl of your dreams doesn't turn out to be quite what you had dreamt. Not that he didn't love her or anything, but that they, they hadn't thought through all of the problems that would come up. And having to face these problems was very good character building. And as I say, puts poor David through the ringer. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, I felt sorry for David. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, there is the character of Estro. That mm. was, again, using that lovely, whole 70s TV and 80s TV trick of using another word for masters. Yeah. I think in this case it was Esperanto. Yes. My wife's a big Esperanto fan and she tried teaching me, but I'm not good at languages. However, every now and again, I will use an Esperanto word because um, it sounds familiar without actually being familiar. Um, which is good. Um, I did it in one of my comic strips also. I, I had um, a pirate called Corvo, because Corvo sounds very good, but Corvo is just the, the um, Esperanto word for crow, <laughs> which which seemed like a night. It, it just had a ring to it, you know. So yes, yes, the Esperanto comes from my wife's bad influence, Tommy. <laughs> How did you find writing for this character? Because it, obviously it was the, the first outing for the Roger Delgado master against oh, yeah. the Eighth Doctor, in fact, the only encounter. Uh, must have been really good fun just to bring him back and oh, have him with us. Yeah, I mean, I love the um, the original master. and Roger Delgado played him so beautifully. He was almost likable in some aspects of his character. And um, he, he had that urbane kind of smoothness of the villain. Almost like a Bond villain, isn't he? I mean, he, he has that kind of smoothness um but menace underneath it all which is lovely and um I, I just thought it would be lovely to to bring him back into this and um bbc books was quite happy for me to do it which was nice i mean i wasn't sure that they would like it but they were they were very supportive they said yeah let's try it. let's do it um so uh, that, that was great i really enjoyed that there's something yeah. that does make sense about the master looking around and using Dalek technology as well. It just sort of, and it ties in quite nicely with Frontier and Space as well. Right. Yes, exactly. And that's where he, he obviously found out about the, um, the Dalek technology that was left behind when he was raiding them for um, stuff in the future. So, yeah, I like the idea because, I mean, the master is a, a, a scavenger. I mean, we see this over and over in the show. He steals technology from anybody that's got it hanging around if he can get, get his hands on it. He's, he's not at all shy about that. Yep. And um, I, I, I thought it would work well with him trying to steal Dalek technology. 
So, yes. Yeah. And then at the end, you pack him off to Tertius as well to meet Chancellor Goff. <laughs> yes. Well, again, I like to, to tie things together and explain stuff. Because, I mean, in uh, Deadly Assassin, we're never actually told why he kind of looks the way he looks. So I thought, well, let, let's, you know, give, give him a, an explanation for um, the problems and things. And I just like the idea that it was Susan who did it. Gave, you know, gave a, a little push um, that, you know, brought him down, basically. So, yeah. I think that's you know, a, bit of, a, a good bit of character development, the fact that Susan, somebody who was so good, and the fact that you know, things that the things that have happened, the fact that David has been killed, and it just shows that how far that the likes of Daleks and the Master can push a good character to be, to change. Well, that's it. And um, I mean, Susan, as we saw her on the show, was basically an alien teenager. She was very young. But I mean, growing up as she did um, on, on this ravaged earth, with all the responsibilities that she has, are obviously going to change her a lot. And I, I like that very, you know, that concept very much that she matured, but that she didn't actually like maturing too much. She enjoyed, she enjoyed being carefree, but it, it, it couldn't last kind of thing. The thing that we don't get to see is the Doctor and Susan having a happy reunion. I think that's that was something that I was I was expecting to at least have some kind of reunion, but kept them apart. Yeah, that that was that was um, me being awful. I mean, the the concept of the story was originally well, the doctor had said he would meet her again someday. So I, I like the idea that he actually has the opportunity. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be horribly ironic if circumstances don't actually get them to meet because again you uh, as i say a bit of conflict doesn't hurt and the idea that he, that they're trying to meet each other and can't or don't rather just struck me as being kind of a, an appropriate irony to the story that um because of course all the fans were saying well wouldn't it be lovely to have susan back and I was thinking, yes, it would actually, but what if they didn't actually get, quite manage to click? Um, so it was that was just me playing playing horrible with the characters. Um, I couldn't. I, I I like the idea of the possibility of the meeting and then not quite clicking. Um, that that was just me being naughty. Yeah. Um, as as the writer, I, I can get away with horrible things like that. You know. <laughs> these things to characters and when we spoke previously about war of the daleks you mentioned that obviously you'd run some of the plot past terry nation did you speak to him much about this one no because this was i believe he had passed away before oh. i got to write this one i had no idea he was ill they, he kept every he kept that very quiet what would happen is i would i would call up and his wife would say oh terry's gone gone for a haircut or something, you know, um, when he was actually going for treatment. Um, so I didn't even know he was ill. And the first thing I had known was when Roger Hancock called me up one morning, uh, which was very unusual because Roger never called. And then I get a call from him and he's saying, you know, I'm sorry, but Terry passed away. So I'm pretty sure that was just before I was starting to write Legacy. 
Yeah. So Terry may or may not have seen the outline that I sent him. I don't know, because as I say, at this point, he was extremely ill and I had no idea that he was. So I don't know whether he even saw the outline for this one. BBC Books had passed it. They, they were very happy with it. Yeah. Well, they were just basically very happy to get the Daleks. You know? <laughs> How do you look back on Legacy of the Daleks now, John? Legacy, I really enjoyed because of all of these things. Again, uh, when you look back on them, you say to yourself, well, I could do this a bit better or I could do that a bit better. But you could do that with everything. Other than that, yes, I, I was very happy with Legacy. There, There is one funny story about Legacy I should mention. When I was in Dwas, I had been writing some short stories for the various magazines. And one of them I did was, in fact, called Legacy of the Daleks. And it was it was basically the little bit of the um, of the novel where Susan is investigating a, a Dalek um, site and finds the master and shoots him. It's just that little snip, if you like. It was only it only ran to like five pages or ten pages. I can't remember how much, but it, it was in it was published in one of the Dwas publications. So when I was writing the the novel of Legacy. Uh, which I'd based on this because it was it, it seemed like a great story that there was much more to tell. I put a little note in at the end of it saying this book was based on a short story I wrote for Doctor Who Appreciation Society and um, everything. And the editor called me up and he says, oh, for God's sakes, John, please take that out. He says, because if you don't, I'll have all these would-be um, novelists writing to me saying here's a fan story i wrote for this fanzine here's a fan story i wrote for that fanzine i'll be appointed in fanzines so um i actually took that out of the book <laughs> to save his sanity but i hadn't even thought of that it was something i never even thought about until he'd said this and i'm like yeah i might be creating a problem for him there. <laughs> that was the only thing that really changed <laughs> Oh, fantastic. John, it's been lovely to chat again. Oh, Kenny, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's true, though. Tell me about... The, the, I, it is. I'm sorry. I was not around. I was, but I, I I think I was learning to read at this point, so... Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the reaction to the book at the time. It was a bit of a controversial one at the time. Uh, some loved it and others didn't. I think people were delighted to have Susan back because it was a character who had been hugely underused. And let's be honest, if you left your grandchild somewhere, you would surely go back and visit them at some point. But in this case, the Doctor hadn't until from his first incarnation through to his eighth. So that's quite a long time. So yes, that was really nice picking up on that. And of course, we meet the mysterious character of Esto, who we've previously discussed there. And that is, of course, the original master that we had on TV, Roger Delgado and we get to see what happens to him and his fate as to why he looks like a crispy man in The Deadly Assassin. So that's all explained at the end of the book, which we're going to hear from now. Uh, Susan and the Master face off on the planet Tertiaris, which is where Chancellor Goth encountered the emaciated Master in the fourth Doctor story, <laughs> The Deadly Assassin. Tertiaris was a nothing planet. Bear Rock 
a few struggling lichens, little greenery, and nothing animal at all in sight. Maybe she wasn't seeing it at its best, but Susan hardly cared about that. She hadn't been a tourist since she'd left Grandfather. That's far enough, she decided. The master staggered to a halt. Now, put that thing down and step away from it. What are you going to do? the master demanded. He seemed to be recovering slowly but incrementally from the mental assault. I'm going to destroy it so that neither you nor any other maniac can use it, she replied grimly. No, he yelped. It's my tool to power. You can't have it. You can't. His mind was starting to crumble again from the stress. Susan glared at him coldly. I'm destroying it in five seconds, she stated. If you're still holding it then, so be it. It's mine, he screamed, and he tried to run, but he'd overestimated his own strength and instead crashed to the ground. Whimpering and snarling, he clutched the transmuter to his chest. Five, Susan said, and in the TCE. There was neither pity nor mercy left in her. She triggered the device, knowing she was killing the master too, and discovered that she was glad of it. If any being deserved death, it was him. The energies of the TCE ravaged through the transmuter and on into the master's body. There was no respite for him now, no way to regenerate from such a death. The transmuter exploded, energies flaring forth. Susan staggered back, shielding her eyes, and re-entered the master's TARDIS. She closed the door swiftly and hurried to the console. She switched on the screen. She could see the energy wave licking futilely at the shell of the TARDIS. It was over. The transmuter was destroyed. The master dead. Now what? What did she have left to her? She stared down at the console, lost and confused. She was free again in all senses of the word. David's death had severed her ties to Earth. And now she had a TARDIS. Everywhere was open to her. She gradually realised that a warning light was flashing. Susan dredged through her memories, her own as well as some she'd taken from the master, and recognised it as a signal lock. That brought her crashing back to the here and now with a shock. When she'd switched off the TARDIS's defence systems, she'd left it vulnerable to a search from Gallifrey. The Time Lords were tracking her down, and she knew what would happen to her if they found her. She'd fled her homeworld with her grandfather for very good reasons, which were unlikely to have changed. She moved quickly, drawing on the Master's knowledge of his ship to reset the defence grid to shield her signal. Then she set the controls to a random destination and engaged the drive units. With a whisper, the ship left the ruins of Tertius behind. Since she didn't have any idea where she was going, neither would the Time Lords. She was still free of them, and she now had a TARDIS once again, one that was controllable. She stared at the console in wonder. She was no longer confined to Earth. She could go anywhere, do anything. But David, grandfather, she was free, but her two great loves were no longer with her. With a whisper, the ship left the ruins of Tertius behind. And there we go. Susan's free, travelling through time and space in the Master's TARDIS and not trapped on Earth as it recovers from the Dalek attack. Shall we quietly pretend we didn't notice any discontinuity with Big Finish again? Discontinuity? I barely know her. <laughs> that was miscontinuity. 
Oh, right. Damn it. <laughs> She's very pedantic and likes to keep everything in order. I've heard that. <laughs> Remember, if you've enjoyed today's Pieces of Eight, or indeed liked any episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast, as it means more people can find our episodes, and it's always appreciated. It most certainly is. We'll be back next time with another BBC book, this time book 11. And we're going to find out what's happened to poor old Sam Jones. Yeah, remember Sam? She got left behind at the end of Longest Day. What do you mean, no? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah she was <laughs> left behind then. So we'll find out what happens in Dreamstone Moon as we chat once more with Paul Leonard. Until then, I've been Kenny Smith. And I've been Rebecca Chubbard. Bye-bye. You're listening to Pieces of Eight. The Doctor Pooh. The, the, the Doctor Pooh. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.